So we are now in the last week, the fourth and final week of our special fall, kind of pre-fall series um, called Artisan Mixtape. And if you're here with us for the first time in the last month or so, um, Mixtape is a series where we flip the script a little bit, and instead of having um, our sermon texts or our sermon topics dictate what music we choose, we're, we're doing it the other way around. Because we value the arts, we certainly value music as an expression, and we're starting with music. Specifically, we're starting with genres of music and finding out if those genres of music might have a certain spiritual lesson, a lesson for how we practice our faith in Jesus, how we live it out, and then everything is following, following after the music. And if you've missed this series, this is like there are I mentioned the podcast from time to time, but you definitely want to go back and hear the podcast uh, from these these uh, services. They've been really, really amazing. We did sacred choral music the first week and Celtic pub rock the second week, and we did blues last week. If you missed the blues week last week, that was a powerful, raw but powerful time of uh, sharing and crying uh, and crying out to God together and hearing the, the biblical witness of the Psalms of Lament that express those blues long before people were writing blues music, and it was a great week. And today, we're finishing up with um, one of my favorite types of music, which is jazz. And uh, jazz music, as you probably know, is a distinctly American art form. Um, the, uh, there's a writer called Gerald Early who said that when we, they study our civilization, civilization American civilization, 2,000 years from now, they will remember us for three things, the Constitution, baseball, and jazz music. Yeah, those are our America's three great contributions to the history of the world. <laughs> um, and so when you talk about jazz, you can talk about it a number of different ways. There's, there's some technical things that we could talk about. If you're a musician, you, you might want to think about how you play eighth notes, whether you play them straight or whether you swing them. Um, it might be that you want to think about instrumentation. You might think of certain instruments as jazz instruments and, and not classical instruments. I was a saxophone player growing up, and so for me, saxophone was about jazz. And they, they sort of shoehorn the saxophone into classical, the classical world by having a wind ensemble instead of an orchestra. But it's, it really isn't supposed to be there. Um, you know, just like trumpets do not belong in in pop music. They're not supposed to be there. <laughs> um, you might think about certain vocal styles and that kind of thing, but what I think about when I think about jazz is one thing in particular, and that one thing is improvisation. Improvisation, very simply, is making it up as you go along. You can hear, you can see the, the, the root of the word is improvise, so when things go to crap, you have to improvise. <laughs> you have to do your best with them. And in jazz music, specifically in how you solo, play solos in classical music, of course, but they're scripted, right? But in jazz solos, they're not scripted. You make them up as you go along. And I learned this lesson a number of times throughout my, my life as a musician. I learned how to jazz improvise in high school. And then I was in one of these wind ensembles in college. I was playing uh, tenor saxophone in a Bach fugue. Now, Bach wrote his fugues before there were saxophones, and so it was an adaptation. But this, this song, for me, was in the key of A minor. And uh, musicians, you might know that there's two different types of minor scales. And, uh, the difference between 
My microphone is out of batteries. Hello. So the difference between these two minor scales is a half step. On the piano, it's like two keys that are right next to each other. And um, I was playing... I'm not enough of a music nerd to know <laughs> whether it was supposed to be harmonic minor or natural minor, but I played the wrong one in my solo in rehearsal once. I played a G natural instead of a G sharp. And the conductor stopped what we were doing and said, Scott, can you play that G sharp, please? Okay. And so... In classical soloing, I had this featured part, and I missed it by a half step. It's the difference between this and this. And it was wrong, and everybody knew it. In jazz, it's not like that. You, can, you don't have to follow a script that somebody else wrote. You make it up as you go along. And so um, we have a special guest musician with us today, as we have throughout this series. Mike, would you come up? Um, this is Mike Van Allen. Do I have your last name right, Mike? Yeah, Mike is a piano player and a jazz prof at Roberts Wesleyan. He's been kind enough to uh, join us today. Would you welcome Mike with me? So what I've, uh, I, in true jazz form, I asked Mike if he would do this about 30 minutes ago. Less than that. <laughs> so what, what we're going to do here is uh, Mike's going to demonstrate what an improvised solo would be like. And then they're going to play some music, and then we'll let the kids get out of here. I know that your, your parents are like, can you please give me some relief? But I wanted them to hear the music because the music matters. All right, so this is going to be E blues. E, is that okay? Do you want to do F? Because I could change it to F on the fly. Oh, yeah, uh, okay, a musician. What would be a good key for, for blues? E, F, E flat? Oh, what a jerk. Um, that's Pastor Mike Muscarella up there. Mike at artisanchurch.com. <laughs> e flat. Right there? Sure. Are you up for it? Isn't that great? So, um, you didn't, like, that's not something that you have memorized, right? What you just played. <laughs> if I asked you to do that again, you couldn't, right? But it was beautiful, right? Wouldn't you like to hear it again? Um, too bad. It's gone forever. <laughs> so, we're, th that gives you a sense of what improvisation is, and and... And what I'm going to get to in a little bit is that I think improvisation is actually 
a wonderful, wonderful metaphor for how we live out our life of faith, how we follow Jesus Christ. That is what I want to talk about this morning, but first I want you to hear some more jazz. Mike is going to play, and our very own Anna Voss is going to sing. So would you welcome Anna back to the stage?
spring can really hang you up the most, which is a ballad style.
opportunity to dismiss our children. Um, and while we're doing that, we're going to play a fun little tune. But um, kids, you can go back. Parents, you can take your children. And they will be brought down here after the sermon time is over. We have a, a zero to three room, uh, which is a volunteer nursery. And um, ages four to nine have some fun crafts and lessons um, in the wing on the other side of the building. So go, kids.
one more. Um, it's called Autumn Leaves, and we're going to do it in a bossa nova style for variation's sake. Also because it's fun. Since you went away, the days grow long. 
away. You've heard Anna sing every other week for years now, and you had no idea, did you? Had no idea. And Mike, thank you so much for being here with us today. Mike um, filled in on very short notice for us today. Uh, We had another cancellation, and um, so thank you. And thank your um, your wife too. (laughs) He's um, making a withdrawal from the goodwill in the family bank this morning. (laughs) So, well, so jazz. What does this? Great genre of music, this grand American tradition, this messy, astonishing, improvisational art form have to teach us about living a life of faith in Jesus. Because um, as awesome as that was, there would, I mean, it would be out of place this morning in this place, in this room, if it didn't have something more uh, to tell us. And I said before that I think that the act of improvisation, which you heard both Mike and Anna do vocally, actually, um, during that performance, is really the key to understanding this important spiritual lesson. Um, And so, here we go. The first thing that I would say, I want to give you some biblical basis for, for that assertion. And I need to warn you at this point that the, uh, the next little bit of what I'm about to say was at one time a few years ago an entire sermon. And even that day when I gave that sermon, I, I warned them then, this is really too much all at once. Um, and so I'm going to have to fly through a little bit of this. Please forgive me um, if you're new here. It, it, and this is the first experience with my preaching. Uh, I don't usually give scripture short shrift, which uh, I hope that it doesn't seem like I'm doing today anyway. But I do have to go very quickly through some of it because I want to get to the other points. But Um, the first thing is that I think that improvisation helps us understand how to achieve God's will, how to live in God's will. Um, John, first John 2 17 says the world and its desire are passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. Doing the will of God is a very important thing. Kind of, it, 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 it unlocks the doors to eternity apparently. And if you are one of those, um, maybe unfortunate types like me who, who spent your whole life in church and you had different things kind of pounded into your head and ingrained in your heart and imprinted on your soul, whether they were really good or not, you probably, like me, had just almost a constant interest, maybe in an obsession with doing God's will and finding out what that means and what God's will is. Those of you who um, had the further misfortune, as I did, to attend a, an undergraduate Christian liberal arts college... Um, no doubt had it, had it just hammered into your head for four solid years that God's will is what you have to find all the time. And, and, and it's, the way they talk about it is like God's will is a needle in a haystack. And you could go your whole life digging through the straw and never find God's will. Or they talk about it like a tightrope, like you're walking on a tightrope, right, tightrope over fire. And one wrong step and you're done. Or sometimes if you're in a really, really spiritual setting, like one of these really, really Christian groups, they, I mean, they, they are on fire for Jesus. And they will talk about not just God's will, but finding the perfect 
the, the center of God's perfect will. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? The, the center of God's perfect will. As if it's a dartboard, right? And you can get a 17, and that's pretty good. But if you are not in the bullseye, you're going to have an awful rusty crown when you get to heaven. But the truth is, the biblical truth is, when we look at the New Testament, which is how we learn how we should live as, as Christians, there are very few passages in the New Testament that actually talk about God's will with any specificity at all. You get ones like the one I mentioned a second ago that say, if you do the will of God, that's good. In this case, you live forever. Jesus said that, you know, his, his, anybody who does his father's will is his mother and his sister and his brother. You're part of Jesus' family for doing God's will. But you don't find very many passages that say, do X because that's God's will for you. In fact, there are only five. I'm going to list them to you, listen for you right now. I'm going to read little bits of them to you right now. First one, uh, and these will be on the screen with page numbers in the Red Bibles. If you'd like to follow along by reading, you can. Thank you, Anna. Um, wow, I, you stole my glass of my plastic cup of water, and, I, and you returned to me a beautiful artisan church pint glass of water. Thank you. I'm going to go to John 6, 39 and 40. Uh, Jesus is speaking here, and he says, This is the will of him who sent me. Imagine a colon right there. Here's what, here's what God's will is. That I, meaning Jesus, should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So the first thing is the most important thing. That God's will is that you know his Son, Jesus, and in knowing Jesus, you receive the gift of eternal life. Very simple, straightforward gospel message right there in about 10 seconds. It's God's will that you be saved by faith in his son, Jesus. Plain and simple. The next passage is Ephesians 5. Um, I'm going to go to page 952 here. 5, 17 through 20. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, you can imagine the colon right there grammatically. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5 says the very specific definition of God's will is that you don't become a drunken fool. That instead of being filled with, with beer or wine or liquor... You are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the outpouring of that intoxication is singing and praise and thanksgiving. So maybe just one artisan pint glass at a time. Pretty simple. Uh, next one is First Thessalonians 4. Lots and lots of scripture, but really fast today. Chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, 
that no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just as we've already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Wow. Um, so we had debauchery in the last passage, fornication in this passage. Um, it's uh, fun times at Artisan Church this morning. The, the will of God is that you do not exploit each other's bodies sexually. That's what that seems to say to me. Your sanctification is the will of God. That simply is a fancy term for being set apart. Being made holy is the spiritual word. But it just means you're set, set apart for a special purpose. Um, your sanctification. That's a very broad spiritual goal. That's God's will. Then in the same book, the next chapter, chapter 5, 12 through um, looks like 18 here. We appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Hey, that's me. (laughs) Uh, Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. (laughs) Uh, He goes on to say, uh, be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. These are instructions for how we live in community with each other. both as a a pastor or a bishop or an elder or whatever you might have in your particular church government uh, and the congregation, but most of all between each other, being forgiving people, rejoicing people, prayerful people, people who live in harmony, shalom with each other. That is God's will, that you live in, in community with each other in that way. And then the last one, the fifth one, I'm not actually going to even read it because it, it it's First Peter two thirteen through seventeen. Um, you can read it on your own if you'd like. But it's it's sort of political and a little bit weird, and I just don't have time to explain it all. And we are also also we're going to talk about politics in a few weeks here um, during our next series. But the point is, in none of these five passages, which are the only ones in the New Testament that define God's will as a specific thing, in none of them do you find things like go to Corinth. For this is God's will for you. And there are instructions that people go places in the New Testament, but they are not termed as God's will. They are not, you should marry you, for this is God's will for you. They are not, you should take the job as a textile worker instead of as a fisherman, for this is God's will for you. In other words, the, Bible defi- the Bible's definition of God's will is nothing like what the definition of God's will is that, that you may have received in the church growing up. Where God's will is a needle in a haystack, a walk on a tightrope, or a, a, a throw at a dartboard. Very precise, specific things. That is not how the New Testament defines God's will. God's will is about who you are as a person, who you know as Lord, how you act around each other, and how you interact with your community. That is God's will for you. 
What does that have to do with jazz? Let me explain how this improvisation thing works. Rather than having a list of notes written out on a page that you have to play, what a jazz musician will see if given a new song is uh, a melody of the song. Um, Anna carried the melody of most of those songs, singing the notes. But then when it comes to the solo section, instead of notes, what a musician will see is chords that last for a certain amount of time, and that's it. And what a good musician will do is know that, say, okay, in an A minor 7 chord, you have these notes. You have an A, a C, an E, and a G. That's an A minor 7. And if I'm soloing over A minor 7, those are my stopping points. Those are the notes that I'm really emphasizing. Anything else that goes between them is is up to me in a passing tone. I can make it do whatever I want. I know, if I'm good at it, that the next chord might be G major 7. And so I know the chords that make up, or the notes that make up that chord, and I have to get through the A minor 7 to the G major 7, making up something that sounds good and makes sense. I would submit to you, my friends, that the Bible's definition of God's will is the solo section. It's the chord progression. It gives you the harmonic structure of the song that is your life rather than a specific melody that you must, must follow. The specific melody is up to you. What a beautiful and utterly terrifying reality. Jesus played the perfect melody, if you will, already. If you want to start by imitating him, go for that. Yes, I like that idea. But you ultimately are called to live out your faith and express the chord changes that are these passages that describe God's will according to the song in your heart, if you will. If you allow me to be a little bit fruity and flaky, maybe. So I have three analogies that will drive this home further, I hope. They're, they're things that make you a better improviser as a musician that I think have corresponding things that will make you a more successful Christian. And I won't bother to define that, but let's just say it doesn't mean finances and it doesn't mean making uh, a song that reaches the top 40 on Christian radio and it doesn't mean um, growing a church to 5,000 uh, or even 200. Um, it doesn't mean any of those things. Here's the first one, and I hate this one. I hate it. Practice. If you don't know music and you've just heard me describe improvisation, you might think that jazz musicians are lucky and they can be lazy because they don't have to do anything. They don't have to follow anything. They just come in and make it up. Oh, my friends. Oh, my friends. Playing a jazz solo over a chord progression requires practice. It's not like playing a solo in a concerto where you practice specific notes and make sure you hit that G-sharp, Scott. But you have to practice scales and arpeggios and tone of your instrument. 
And you have to do it over and over and over again. And you have to, have to become conversant in the vocabulary of music so that you can perform under pressure. Because if you don't practice this kind of thing, and then suddenly someone calls you up and says, hey, I had a cancellation. Can you come in and play some jazz piano for us tomorrow? <laughs> You're going to be in trouble. Very clearly, Mike has spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours practicing to get to the point where he could make something up on the spot that's that beautiful. The same goes for Anna and her vocal scat. And practice is tedious. I hate practicing. If you're not good at something yet, it can be embarrassing to listen. Anna, if I remember right, your office at Roberts Wesleyan is right below some practice rooms, right? And do they get it right on the first try? No. <laughs> Are you embarrassed for them as you listen? No, of course not, because you're a musician. But it, it can be very hard to practice and not get it right first. And you're like, oh, this is terrible. I'm never going to get it. But you get better over time. The same kind of thing is true for faith. Just as an improviser needs a musical vocabulary, a faithful Christian needs a faith vocabulary. You have to be practicing the general skills of faith, especially at times when life is a little smoother. Because you are going to need to know how to pray when life gets rocky. You're going to need to know the Bible before you need to know it. Does that make sense? If you're in trouble and looking for answers in the Bible and you've never cracked it open before, you're going to be reduced to that famous, Oh Lord, please Lord, please Lord. Then he brought me to the gate the gate facing east. And there the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the... This has nothing to do with me getting fired. <laughs> so you have to be practicing the tools of your faith all along. And by the way, just as musicians sometimes need a teacher and to take lessons, people of faith sometimes need a spiritual director. And if you're interested in spiritual direction, I can talk to you more about that sometime soon. Here's the second analogy. This analogy is about your knowledge. A good jazz musician not only has to practice, but he or she needs to know a little bit of information. Let's start with music theory. <laughs> um, I just showed you what an A minor 7 chord was. That's because I know a little bit of music theory. Um, Tim, could you tell me what the next chord was? G major 7? What are the notes in G major 7? He's, he doesn't know. He's not a musician. There's, you're right, there is a seven in there. <laughs> and a G. <laughs> it's a certain kind of seventh, actually. <laughs> if, if you are going to go improvise a solo over a chord progression, you have to know the notes in the chords. You have to know how to form them in your head as you go. And it's, it's okay that you don't know that. You know a lot of other things that I don't know. <laughs> um, probably more useful things, ultimately, Tim, but... Um, without that knowledge, you're sunk. There's no way you could do it unless your ear is really, really good. But that's not, that doesn't really count. Very, very few people can do that. And there's no, more importantly, there's no corresponding thing in the life of faith. So just forget I said it. Um, <laughs> so a good and faithful Christian living out a life of following Jesus needs to know some theory. All right, so you... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to embrace your inner theologian. I didn't, want, I didn't go to seminary, Scott. Theology is for you. 
to tell me about? Well, no. If you are, if you have, have ever made a statement about God, anybody in this room ever made a statement about God, even if it's, he doesn't exist, you are a theologian, my friend. Sorry. You might as well be a good one, not a terrible one. So study it a little bit. Work on it. Learn what language people use about God and how God is described and understood in light of Scripture and the tradition of the church. Embrace your inner theologian just a little bit. You've got to have some theory before you play your solo. And maybe it's boring, but once you get it in your head, the good news is you don't have to think about it anymore. It's just there. Not to say you don't have to think, but you don't have to grind through the memorization stuff anymore. A, a, an even better improviser is going to know a little bit about music history. Going to know what a bossa nova is, for example, and where that fits in our, our musical history. Along the same lines, a good musician is going to know the greats and copy them. <laughs> I have a book uh, at home that's really dusty. It's called the Charlie Parker Omnibook. I was a saxophone player. The Charlie Parker Omnibook contains uh, all of Charlie Parker's songs that he played, probably the greatest alto sax player in history, probably. Certainly the most difficult to copy. But all of his solos transcribed note for note. And my saxophone teacher, if you can believe this, wanted me to learn them. They're really fast, by the way. I stopped playing saxophone. Um, But it's not just knowing chords, and it's not just knowing music theory. It's also knowing how other people have expressed it in the past. As a Christian, you ought to know how the heroes of our faith have lived out their faith. You should know Brother Lawrence and Mother Teresa. You should know uh, Gregory of Nazianzus and St. Thomas Aquinas even. If you are going to be a curious person of faith and, and don't explore these people and learn how they express their faith, you're missing out. Yes, you can do it. You, there's not going to be a quiz when you get to the pearly gates. I'm not going to ask you anything about Calvin's Institutes. Um, but you will be a better, more successful person at living out of faith in Christ when you know what others have done before you. So practice is the first thing. Knowledge is the second thing. And here's the best one the very best comparison between improvisation and living a life of faith is the concept of resolution. Did anybody... He's, I think he's gone. Did anybody notice in the solo that Mike took in... Um, I think it was a foggy day. He played a, a wrong note. Did you notice that? It was not in the chord that he was playing over at that moment. Did you catch that? No? <laughs> you know why? Because he immediately slipped to the right note. <laughs> he played here. I don't know what it was. And it should have been here. And he went like this. Right? He hit the wrong note, but he resolved it to the right note. He probably did it on purpose. He's a very skilled musician. He probably did it to build harmonic tension and then release it. But in jazz, unlike in classical music, when you play a wrong note, nobody's going to stop the whole 
ensemble <laughs> and point it out to you. You're not going to get kicked out for that. If you resolve it, make it sound intentional even, <laughs> make the best of it, it's all good. It's great even. And sometimes you can, you can make these little miscues happen and, and they even add to the, to the feeling. Sort of like Mike did, assuming that it was a mistake. I mean, look, look, look at the stories of people in the Bible. Man, did they ever mess things up? Man, did they screw things up. So bad sometimes. And yet, more often than not, the reason they made the cut and became a Bible story is that it got resolved. They played their G-sharp and then, oops, went down to the G natural what it was supposed to be. And if you hear nothing else this morning, this is the thing I want to reassure you about. This is the message I want you to hear. That the wrong notes that happen in your life, and sometimes they're because you played the wrong note, and sometimes it's because life played the wrong note at you. In either case, there is hope. There is grace. There is resolution. In living a life of faith, you are bound to play wrong notes. It is just going to happen. Paul's missionary journeys were filled with shipwrecks and imprisonments. And if you think about it, he started out going the complete wrong direction and persecuting the Christians. <laughs> he got turned around and had a major key change there <laughs> in his life. There's, there's not a character in the Bible except Jesus himself who didn't play a wrong note. And Jesus had a pretty lousy note played at him, right? I don't want to diminish the profound and somber reality of the crucifixion, but that was God's greatest example of taking what someone intended for evil. The, the Jewish authorities, the Roman leaders, Satan himself, and turning that around and bringing life out of death. Grace and hope. There's always a chance to resolve your wrong note. But don't forget the first two things, the practice and the knowledge. If you don't practice and if you don't have the knowledge, you aren't going to know how to resolve the wrong note. So I'd encourage you to think of your life of faith not as Bach's fugue in G minor, but as autumn leaves with a chord progression. And I encourage you to practice an improvisational faith. Will you pray with me? Lord, we give you thanks for the beauty of music, for the incredible experience that these past weeks have been, where people from all walks of life have joined and shared with us the gift of harnessing these frequencies and, and vibrations and bringing them down into this gorgeous music of all different sorts. 
Lord, we thank you that these uh, genres of music have been great lessons for us. And today we give you thanks for the message of Scripture that knowing you and following you and doing your will is not about finding a needle in a haystack. It's not about walking a tightrope or throwing a dart and trying to hit a bullseye. But it's about playing the song that you have put in our heart in accordance with the, the structure of life, the harmonies of the universe that you created. And we thank you most of all, Lord, for the grace available to us in the life and death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, which ultimately is the final resolution of all the wrong notes that are played by us and around us and at us. We give you thanks for this grace, and we, we live in it and swim in it. Help us, Lord, to have the courage to step out and live an improvisational faith one that brings uh, glory to your name and brings hope to those around us and pulls your kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, closer to earth. We pray all these things in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like to invite you now to participate in Holy Communion. I didn't include it in the list of things that that I was talking about this morning, but um, receiving the sacrament of communion is another way that you prepare your soul to live out your faith. And if uh, you're following Jesus in this place, this table is open for you. You're welcome to participate. We uh, at Artisan take communion every week, and, and we do it by tearing off a piece of the bread and dipping it in the, the cups. We have both wine and juice, whatever is more appropriate for you and your family. Uh, receive that as food for your souls. Take it in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for you. And do it in harmony, in shalom, in a musical ensemble embrace of those around you, uh, here in this room, here in our city, all around the world, and yeah, even throughout time as people have shared in this meal that Christ instituted together. The table's open. Uh, if you're following him, please come. <laughs>